This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and a very warm welcome to this, the 12th day of the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Nick Barley and it's my great honour to be the director of this wonderful festival. A festival... Thank you. No. No, because... Uh, uh, thank you, I appreciate that, but it's really... This festival's so great because of its audiences. Um, and, I, and I'm so proud of what these audiences do to make our sessions so great. And I trust that you'll do that again tonight. The other thing, of course, which makes these festivals so great is the quality of the speakers we have. And congratulations to all of you tonight for managing to get a seat at this, uh, certainly the hottest ticket of the festival so far. Why is it such a hot ticket? Well, certainly because we've got a great author, an author who has earned the right to claim that he is the greatest British novelist of his generation. Uh, but I think one of the joys for me of, of programming this festival is not just the ability to attract great authors. It's also the ability to put together great conversations. And I hope you'll agree that today's chair has also earned the right to claim his place among the greats of Scottish politics. Now, whatever your political opinions, you have to accept that the First Minister led the Scottish National Party to the first ever majority in this newly devolved Scottish Parliament. And for that, uh, I think he deserves his place among the greats of Scottish politics. And perhaps the reason for that majority, and that this is not a, a party political broadcast for the SNP, I assure you, the reason for that majority is because this government realises that culture and literature, of course, is a crucial part of the discussion of what, it, what national identity means. And it's that understanding which has meant that this government has supported culture, not just literature, but, but, but literature in particular, and the festivals here in Edinburgh. And it's this government which has had the courage to put money into a special festivals expo fund from which this festival has benefited. And I just want to put on record in front of the journalists here today that it's thanks to that expo fund that this festival has been able to be ambitious, to take the name of Edinburgh around the world through our World Writers' Conference. And for the next year, Edinburgh is going to be in the public eye everywhere, everywhere. So, uh, broadcast over. That's why I wanted to invite Alex Salmond to chair an event, and he told me that he wanted to chair Ian McEwan. And so, I hope you'll give a very proper and very warm Edinburgh Book Festival welcome to the First Minister, Alex Salmond. Well, well, ladies and gentlemen, I, I was tempted not to come on because Nick was doing so well. I mean, <laughs> fantastic. You just keep talking, Nick. It's great. Now, I, uh, you may wonder, why do I end up every year at the, uh, at the book festival? Uh, this ha happened uh, in the first flush of uh, election victory in 2007. Uh, I decided to, to hold a, a reception in Butte House across the road uh, for the festival directors uh, and... Uh, in the middle of the reception, uh, Kathleen Lockerbie, Nick's predecessor, 
they said to me, you know, what are you personally doing for the book festival? And I said, I shall come to the book festival next year. Indeed, I'll come every year as long as I'm first minister. So, <laughs> and I thought, uh, you know, I thought, well, it's a political promise. You know, it'll be all right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then... <laughs> Then I thought, you know, when Catherine moves on to even greater things, then her uh, successor will quietly not know about it. But Nick, of course, is nothing if not punctilious, <laughs> and, uh, and Catherine had left on the notes. Uh, so, <laughs> hence, uh, every year, for as long as I'm First Minister, uh, we'll find an event. Now, it's quite difficult, of course, because uh, I have the, well, unless you count uh, pamphlets and white papers and manifestos, uh, I haven't written a book in my life, so, <laughs> so that makes it kind of tricky. So we have to find a different way every year to get me into the book. For, what I should have actually said uh, is that I'd, uh, I'd never written any non-fiction in my life. Obviously, if you've written pamphlets and manifestos, you've written plenty of fiction. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, but nonetheless, we have to find an inventive way uh, every year for, uh, for uh, me to redeem my promise uh, to, to the book festival. Now, nothing could be better this year because uh, Ian and I met for the, the, the first time earlier this year when I was, I was doing the Hugo Young lecture, that great Guardian journalist uh, in, uh, in London. And we got talking only for a, a brief moment or two after the lecture. And immediately, well, as we started talking, I thought this might make a really great uh, event for the, the book festival and fortuitously of course uh, maybe not coincidentally but uh, Ian's uh, new book Sweet Tooth is published this very day uh, so therefore ladies and gentlemen I have the most immense pleasure in inviting in my estimation the greatest living novelist in these islands to come and join us ladies and gentlemen Ian McEwan Well, that, that wasn't bad. I mean, Nick butters me up, then I butter you up. <laughs> Who do I get to? <laughs> now, can we we'll start uh, in the format, I should say, ladies and gentlemen, that you and I are going to have a chat for uh, half an hour or so, and then we're going to throw open to the, the audience for uh, questions, of which you can roam far and wide through Sweet Tooth, your, your Ian's latest uh, novel, or any of his other works, or indeed any issues of, uh, uh, of the day. But uh, if I could just start the ball rolling, Ian, they... There's a lot of this book. This book is set in uh, 1972 to 1974. And without giving away too much of the plot, because obviously every single one of these people are going to buy it before this day is out, uh, uh, there is a character, a main character, Tom Haley, in it, who you might think has a passing resemblance to yourself. I mean, for example, he gives a, a book reading with Martin Amos uh, in the book, One of Your Great Friends. It's edited by Ian Finlay and at one point drinks to excess in the pillars of Hercules pub in Soho, all of which I understand you have done at one time or another. So how much of uh, that character is autobiographical? Well, this is a young writer, Tom Healy, who becomes a target for MI5. They want to fund him. They think that he's a fellow who will speak up for Western values. Uh, and they send a a beautiful young woman uh, to present herself as working for a front organization. Uh, and yes, he's a writer at the start of his career at University of Sussex, which is where I was. Uh, he's much obsessed by the form of the short story, as I was. Uh, quite a few of the short stories that Serena Froome, the young 
MI5 agent reads are actually borrowed from, from my own work, but slightly distorted. And this is a heavily mutated autobiography. Um, yes, uh, Tom Haley gives a reading with Martin Amos. Uh, it goes disastrously because Amos goes on and everyone cracks up with laughter. Uh, Tom Haley goes on and reads something very dark and distasteful, uh, and people are still wiping their eyes and can't relate to it at all. I gave a reading with Martin uh, years ago at the Y in New York. Martin read something extremely funny. People were quaking in their seats. I was waiting in the wings, just as I was right there. I was about to go on, and I felt a hand on the shoulder, and it was Christopher Hitchens. He said, you're never going to get anywhere until they calm down. I'm going to go and talk them down. <laughs> so he, Hitch went on stage and for 10 minutes spoke very eloquently about British literary culture, put everyone in a solemn and uh, gloomy mood. Uh, and then I could come on and read about a child being abducted from a supermarket. Now this time, uh, Christopher Hitchens is not there. He died uh, last November. Uh, so my Tom Healy walks on into this uh, without that wise intervention. But, but this, uh, Serena Froome is a, a, a very glamorous uh, young uh, lady spy, quite naive, uh, but she walks into your character's uh, room, cloisters in, uh, in the university, uh, offers them uh, a stipend uh, and herself, <laughs> in, in that order, if I remember correctly. So the obvious question is, uh, how autobiographical was that bit? Uh, <laughs> If only. <laughs> That's the bit. So there must be some wish fulfillment here. There's always that element in fiction. No such girl came into my life. Um, I did get some Arts Council funding, though. Not, uh, <laughs> uh, not from MI5. Or if I did, I wouldn't tell you. So you can take it as a lie. Uh, but the interesting thing... Uh, can I call you Alex? Yes, of course, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, is that... Um, Your High Excellency does as well. But <laughs> Alec, Alec, Alec will do. <laughs> Your High Alex. Uh, <laughs> right at the beginning of the Cold War, uh, the CIA in particular put tens of millions of dollars into culture, and uh, there was a cultural Cold War. Uh, a music festival of atonal uh, compositions held in Paris in 1950 was funded mm. through a front organization by the CIA. Tours by the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Encounter magazine famously, uh, Demonart, it's German. Resigned, the editor resigned, didn't they? The, mm. Of Encounter, the yeah. editor. Spender resigned. Spender, yeah. Spender, yeah. Uh, because it was discovered. He didn't know it was a front organization. Well, everyone thought he, he was mad not to know, because it was sort of open secret. Mm. Uh, still, it was. Uh, a matter of great scandal at the time. Uh, and this was all in pursuit of the idea of an open society. Um, generally, the Americans wanted to persuade left-of-center European intellectuals that um, America was not a cultural desert, um, that there were Western values in art that could be spoken for, and yet they wanted to do this in secret. They could have done it through the National Endowment for the Arts, could have done it through the Arts Council. 
and it's that habit for secrecy that yeah. seems so interesting to me. I mean, this is a, a theme in, in the question that comes up in the book, that the various characters say, well, why don't you just do it? I mean, you know, I, I give lots of government money to Nick, and he tells everybody about it. <laughs> it you know, seems a much more open way of doing things. But, yeah, uh, and it gets votes, too. Yeah, uh, it gets votes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but but why why I mean why did they do it I mean you know I mean if if you take your example I mean you're a, a left of centre uh, European intellectual uh, who uh, you know adopts a progressive stance on lots of issues but would have been fundamentally suspicious of the Soviet Union and uh, mm. you know you wouldn't have needed any sort of covert funding and, uh, to to inspire you to put forward that point of view. So what an F support? Well, it was rapidly discovered that the most eloquent um, writers, thinkers, arguers against the Soviet Union were either ex-communists mm. or the left opposition of one kind or another. They could argue in the way that, say, Miosh did or Orwell or um, The God That Failed brought together many such writers in Crossland's book. So why not get them? I mean, Orwell famously made his list of writers to uh, a little organization in the Foreign Office called the IRD, Secret Organization, Information Research Department. The IRD spent a lot of time and effort making sure that Animal Farm and 1984 got translated into yeah. as many languages across uh, the Soviet Empire as possible. Actually, not a bad thing to have done. But again, why not do it? Uh, openly. Like the the answer, well, I think there is a habit organizations have. Once they're in place, they just roll on in their own sweet way. They gain influence by their s secretive nature. And how much, I mean, the, the, this, ladies and gentlemen, is a, a world which uh, uh, the events are, are out, that are happening, you know, the 1972, 1974, the, the Friday week, the elections of 74, then people of my generation uh, you remember very well. Well, also university at the time, and, you get the, and this is the backcloth of what's happening. But the, this world of, uh, uh, of uh, MI5, which is not, uh, you know, James Bond or, uh, or even Callan or something like that, but and this is not people shooting each other. This is, this is people, you know, sponsoring literature. I, I mean, how much, how much, it's how, much how, it's I mean, how did you find out about all this? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I made it up. Um, <laughs> um, MI5 did not fund any novelists, as far as I know. Mm. Uh, it funded, though, uh, public, IRD, which was connected to, to MI5, published, uh, funded various publishers uh, and, of course, the magazines. Um, it seemed a very short step, and one I wanted to make boldly, to think why not fund some academics, historians, and one novelist just for a little bit of interest? I have to say, this is highly preferable to, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles and things. This, you know, this is a great way to conduct, uh, conduct ideological wars, you know, sponsor authors. Yeah. Well, we you know, we, we had to go and watch the Red Army Chorus um, and the Bolshoi Ballet. It was coming the other way. The other, yeah. Their intercontinental missiles were lots of prancing guys who actually weren't in any Red Army. It was just the name of the chorus, as far as I knew. And, and, and in the book, in Sweet Tooth, the, uh, the, the, whole, the whole project ends in, in fairly spectacular failure. Do you want to say about, about why the best laid schemes of uh, mice and MI5 going away? Well, I, I'm cautious about giving away the end of this novel. Uh, it twists uh, but in the end, ladies and gentlemen. That's a big twist. Yeah, <laughs> <don't> <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what can I say? Um, 
if you write a spy novel, you're bound to want to pose the question, who is in charge of the narrative? Um, okay. could, could I leave it in those vaguely, those, those most vague of terms? So I just want to play a little game with the authority uh, of the truth and who's deceiving whom, uh, and I want the reader bound into that process. That, that's where, uh, that's about as far as I'd want to go. But the, one of the aspects, just to dwell for a second, in the, in the book is that the, uh, the character is, uh, uh, and uh, the, the female spy is very much caught up in the, the uh, author's uh, past or, or, or works as they come out, which are, in some cases, uh, the, similar to at least some of your past works uh, and storylines that you've, uh, you've developed. So uh, what, were, what were you playing yeah. at there? I mean, what, okay, well, what's, what's going on there? Tom Haley's first novel uh, is actually borrowed entirely and word for word from an abandoned novel of mine um, I wrote in the 70s. And it was interesting to sort of go into a bit of self-re-examination. You think you're making things up um, in a kind of hyperspace untouched by anything around you. You then look back over 40 years and realize the times, as it were, have really helped shape um, what you do. So I saw this novel. It was a very bleak dystopia. All of society had fallen apart. Um, its characters are rather like the characters in Defoe's Journal yeah. of the Plague Year. They head out of town. Uh, everything is, all the comforts, all the systems of civilization have cracked up. There were dozens of such novels being written in the 70s. I thought mine was unique. I realize now you know, it was part of a sort of seething mass of dystopia. This, this storyline, of course, causes deep distress within MI5 when they realise that the sponsored novelist is uh, predicting the collapse of uh, Western capitalism in total disarray. Uh, so obviously, they, at that stage, they begin to suspect that their, uh, their schemes are not turning out as they wished. It's a bad idea to back a novelist. But anyway, there it is. But, but just one sort of incidental one, one that's not a previous uh, uh, storyline of yours that I know of. Uh, this mathematical puzzle that's actually an American... Uh, game show. Do, do you want to, I mean, I, I might get it wrong. Yeah, we're going to lose everybody you, now, you, I tell you. No, 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 no. no. Uh, this everybody, at this point, everybody has to concentrate, okay? okay. This, this is really interesting. You're an economist and you take this for granted. This is a literary audience. Listen, we will hear them fall asleep. But, <laughs> it, but, <laughs> but see, in, it, in the book, the author <laughs> misunderstands the puzzle. Okay. He actually knows it. Yeah, but to misunderstand it, you've got to understand, I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, the Monty Hall problem. You're, you're a contestant at a TV game show. There are three boxes. In one box, A is a prize, and two other boxes, B and C, are empty. You don't know which the prize is in. Monty Hall does. You open a box, and Monty Hall then gives you the opportunity to change your choice. Sorry, you choose a box. You don't open it. You choose a box. Monty Hall then gives you the chance to shift your box after he has chosen a box. Do you choose or do you stay? If you move your choice... Right, ladies and gentlemen, who, who would stay and who would choose the other one? Right, the minority's right. Choose the other one. Got, I know it seems like you've got an even chance, but it's not. You've got twice as much chance of being right if you choose the other one. Yeah. Ian will tell you why. In politics, the minority is always right. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> 
except in the last election, where I mean, <laughs> but the, 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 in the book, uh, the Ian's alter ego, uh, Ian's uh, figure changes this. Instead of being a game show of boxes, it becomes which hotel door do you kick down uh, to find your wife uh, and her lover <laughs> out of three hotel doors, <laughs> which yeah. is, I think, a great practical application of this mathematical uh, conundrum. My heroine is a mathematician, we forgot to tell you this. And a very she, bad mathematician. A very bad, but certainly better than, than he is. Uh, she lays out the problem for him, he gets excited by it, tries to draw it into fiction, yeah. makes a spectacular failure, partly based on a mistake that she's made. Um, this is so technical, Alex, that I... All right, OK, I, I, who I remembers? Fear. Take your pick. <laughs> Remember Michael Miles? Yeah, first, first game show host. Total different from Hughie Green. He was statuesque. He spoke and received English. Uh, it was my granny's favourite programme. Uh, and back in sometime in the early 1960s, uh, there was a, a boy from Bone S. I was from the Live Go, one, take your pick, right? Big thing. And uh, basically, you won the show, and then you got to open the box or take the money. And obviously, Michael Miles knew which was in the box could be the yacht, which was a star prize, or it could be a carrot. You know, that, that was the risk you took. So Michael Miles says to the boy from Bonesse, he says, £100. A lot of money in these days. £100 is a lot of money. The guy from Bonesse says, no, no, Mr. Miles, I said to my family, if I was clever enough, if I was lucky enough to win your game show, I'm going for the star prize. I want that yacht sailing in the fourth beside Bonesse. And Michael Miles goes, £200. The boy from Bonesse says, listen, I, I told my wife before I came out, I says, if I'm lucky enough to win your show, Mr. Miles, I'm going to open the box. I'm going for the star prize. Michael Miles says, £300. Now, that is a fortune in the early 60s. Absolute fortune. Guy from Bonesse says, no, Mr. Miles, I promised my widowed mother that regardless of what you said to me, even if you offered me a thousand pounds, I'm opening the box, I'm going for the star prize. Michael Miles says, one thousand pounds. The boy from Bonesse says, I'll take the money. <laughs> now, is that the Monty Hall Pro? <laughs> it's almost there. It, it just... You, in, in Sweet Tooth, I mean, the, there's a lots of... Uh, this, uh, I mean, it's difficult to describe, isn't it? I mean, for, for me, it's the... It's the, the it's a spy story, but it's not really about what normal spy stories are about. It's about literature. It's all little illusions. And there's some fantastic kind of walk-on characters who walk on, say quite really interesting things, and then, you know, off they go again. And one of them is a CIA <laughs> a guy who uh, is giving a course to uh, MI5, uh, uh, and he's speaking to them. And he talks, this guy called Pierre from the CIA, uh, he talks about the, uh, the hazardous terrain where politics and literature meet. I thought that was the most... Now, paid. that's where I'd rather be, uh, especially with you. Um, <laughs> when we met briefly at The Guardian, we almost instantly started to have a conversation, uh, partly about your lecture, which was about an independent Scotland, uh, but in, in relation to literature. And I put to you that there are no British poets there are no British novelists. I was heard myself described as one, but I think really I am an English novelist. Not a, there are Scottish poets and Scottish novelists. Auden, Don Patterson, R.S. Thomas, we know instantly. Um, 
it fascinated me to, to read that you are a great lover of the poetry of, of Larkin. Mm. He was no Scots poet. Mm. Uh, I don't know if he ever set foot here. Um, mm. Yes, he did, actually. Yeah. I know he did. And R.S. Thomas. And, uh, and R.S. Thomas. What, I mean, the quintessential Welshman. So what does this say? I mean, this probably goes with the grain of, of, of your political ambition. Well, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't incredibly disappointed to hear you say that yeah. uh, and, <laughs> as, we were, as we're discussing it. But uh, I, I think, well, I mean, you're, the, you're, the, you're the author. I mean, the, 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 obviously a great deal of what you do, what any artist does, comes from the, the, the experience, comes from the... And that, that sense of being, sense of self, is, is mm. part of the, the, the expression. It doesn't really matter the art form. In fact, I would have thought a written art form that's clearer than, let's say, a musical art form, uh, where some people, certain types of uh, musical expression, opera, for example, are, are pretty, you'd think, universal. But you know, I know people who tell me that they can listen to a, a, a violinist playing and and hear their experience from, uh, from the musical instrument. I think you can certainly do it from literature, you can certainly do it from poetry, probably mm. even more from poetry than literature. But, you know, come on, you, well, you're, you're the guy that's putting forward the thesis. I was just agreeing with you, that was all. <laughs> it struck me that this is where poetry and football coalesce, because uh, Olympics apart, mm. you know, we've kept our football traditions uh, separate too. As regards literary culture, it, it fascinates me that it's been so resilient to the union. Yes. That, for example, when T.S. Eliot wanted to become a poet in these lands, it was an English poet, it was an Anglican poet he wanted to be. So one thought that uh, strikes me, particularly about the novel, this reinforces my suspicion that all novels are provincial and that all the great novels are very rooted in a particular time and place. So whether it's Madame Bovary or Anna Karenina, they're specific to a time and place. And that gives them that quality. Through there, by accident, there rises like a kind of mist, uh, maybe the universal values, but they're not actually the, the thing that the novelist is concentrating on. It's the here and now, the specific of... Um, the Bovary's life or, or Levin's marriage or whatever it is. It's that specificity. But it doesn't make them provincial, of course, because, uh, I mean, people, you know, people around the world uh, love an authentic note. They, exactly. they, 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 they like to hear and read something. That's, uh, I don't use provincial in a pejorative sense. No, no, sense. I understand. I'm just saying that it's, it, it, it's highly local. So it, it seems... Uh, and, and it was only meeting you that actually pushed this thought into my head at the end of your lecture. Pursuing this football team thing, you know, <coughs> if, if, if you were a footballer, you're, right, your dad was Scottish, right? His, uh, Ian's dad was a, a, an army officer, a, a major, I think, in a Scots regiment? Or a, he, he, jo he joined the HLI. Ah. Uh, but so listen, on football, you know, on the FIFA rules of, uh, of eligibility, you know, we could grab you over. Uh, and field you, <laughs> you know, centre forward in the Scottish literary team, you know. I could, I could play in the British team, actually, because my mother was English. Where, where would that leave us? Uh, well, I could have played in the Olympic team. Could be in the league, we could have done a little better than we well, did, actually. Uh, the Cultural Olympics, uh, when I was describing the, these great festivals uh, as the Cultural Olympics, I thought that was... Uh, but then it's only really, isn't it, enjoyable if, if you get the different mm. traditions and... Uh, 
distinctiveness coming to the, the fore. What does a Scot find in Larkin? Well, well I'm tempted to say truth, but <laughs> most people would. Well, I, I, I think Larkin has attracted me not despite the fact he's an English poet, but yeah. because he's an English poet. Yeah. I think Aris Thomas was attractive. Aris Thomas was a complex because he was an Anglican priest, remember, and his, his Welshness, if not acquired, became very accentuated as his life. He became more and more, uh, you know, iconoclast, I suppose, in some ways. But, uh, but yeah, it's precisely because they're offering something, a distinctive, authentic note that, you, uh, that you're attracted to. That's surely the case. I'm, I'm trying to think what binds R.S. Thomas to Larkin. They're both good. <laughs> well, they're very good. Uh, both en moyen sensuel, should we say. I mean, they're not um, great celebrators of the flesh. Ah, but then I'm reading you, and, you, and you're celebrating quite a bit of flesh in here, isn't it? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm neither Larkin nor Thomas. It, I'm just trying to think, you know, it seems paradoxical, because I know you're a man who loves life. <coughs> um, I'm just trying to tease out yeah. what binds those two. The, I think, well, I suppose the easiest answer, if you look at, if you look at R.S. Thomas, he went through uh, different phases. So, you know, for a good period of his time, he was writing love poetry. Mm. Uh, and good love poetry. And then uh, it became very political, very environmentalist. I mean, mm. uh, you know, some of your recent work has, uh, mm. has taken you in that direction. Uh, and, uh, well, actually, I, I think it might have been, it might, I'm not sure, Martin Amos, who once said that uh, uh, R.S. Thomas' poetry reduces most contemporary poets to meaningless drivel or something like that. He made us... A very I, aggressive I think, statement in support of R.S. Thomas. I think it was Al Alvarez. Was it? Right? Yeah, okay. who, who, who did a wonderful celebration of Thomas. Yeah. But yes, I mean, it was very spirited. Uh, and wrote a beautiful obituary of him when he died in, you know, ten years ago. It's more than that now. Yeah. But uh, uh, anyway, let's get back to the st some of the stuff. You, you're, you've got your, uh, your films uh, uh, in a short season uh, here in, uh, in Edinburgh. And of course... You must have been asked lots and lots. Yeah, we've got here. Enduring Love, uh, till the 20th of August. Well, that's fine. Atonement, 22nd August only. And the uh, Cement Garden on the 23rd of, of August. Which one are you going along to? to? I'm going to the Cement Garden because that's the least known. Uh -huh. It was made on a shoestring uh, in the early 90s by Andrew Birkin. Uh, the director wrote the screenplay. He spent many, many years on it. Uh, and many years gathering um, and, and cajoling and persuading uh, the backers to put uh, half a million pounds in its cost to make the film. It's got Charlotte Gainsbourg in it, and I think she's absolutely stunning in it. Uh, she plays an English six-form girl. Uh, she does it with unbelievable poise. Uh, why do I love it so much? I suppose it's because practically every sentence is, 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 in, is in the uh, screenplay. You know, every, it's done with... Um, I mean, he loved the novel. I'm very flattered by that. And he put the thing through many, many drafts, always coming back to the text. Very, so what, very what do you expect when, uh, when, when you see your work on... Uh, I mean, you're not... I mean, obviously, the, this, the Cement Garden, uh, which mm -hmm. the film I haven't seen, but the... But they, you know, you very much uh, are taken because the the director Andrew Burke and followed the the, the, the the your work as you would have liked to see it portrayed. Mm. But you, so, I mean, how do you feel about you know 
a tournament was an incredible success. Mm. Uh, so do you judge the film on its success or do you say, damn it, they missed out page 32, key piece of dialogue? There is, there is a bit of implacable, you'll never please me, um, I think, in any novelist who has a, a novel turned into a movie. But no, Joe Wright did a superb job with uh, Atonement. Uh, we slightly lost the end. We ran out of time, uh, so we couldn't have the children come back and remount the trials of Arabella. Um, you're glazing over, I see. No, no, um, no. I, I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Uh, the, the end actually wasn't as happy as it yeah. was portrayed as being, was um, it? Uh, but yes. Because uh, he really got killed in the war or something, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but very lucky with that. Do you um, not like happy endings? This is quite happy. But, um, <laughs> Sweet Tooth is quite a happy ending, I think. Yeah. Um, there is a school of filmmaking that uses the novel as a springboard for the director's imagination. So that the business is not how do we make this into an equivalent experience on screen, but what is it, what little thing in this, you know, prompts me, the director, the god of the, of the whole project, uh, to find some bit of myself. Oh. Uh, and, and that can be very unfortunate. Um, I mean, what, what, in terms of process, you know, once they kind of buy the rights, etc., do you get sort of uh, keep away because <laughs> what do you know about it? You just wrote it. Uh, yeah. or, or is it alternatively, yeah. some people say, come in because I, I don't really understand this bit or whatever. Well, uh, the first question is, will I write the script? Uh, and I, I've done it twice now. Uh, I did it for The Innocent with John Schlesinger mm. and Anthony Hopkins. And, uh, it was a, sort of a disaster, um, partly because Schlesinger was not well, partly I think we just uh, all got exasperated with each other. We were very unhappy set. God, I'd never heard such shouting. I learned new swear words uh, <laughs> at the age of 45, um, uh, which John Schlesinger taught everyone um, very loudly on certain occasions. Um, you, in the end, you have to stand back. I mean, you, I get myself made executive producer. Yeah. Uh, I get a little bit of input with the casting, get involved with whoever's doing the screenplay. But th there comes a time when you, it's just going to roll on without you. And you just have to take, take your chances. And that's fine. You, it's such an expensive, complicated process and so many people involved. You can't have someone running onto that set saying, as Eliot says in the waste in the proof rock, you know that's not what I meant at all. You know, if we could just all go back, it would make things very uh, complicated and expensive. Now we have a a, a great audience today of Fiona uh, and fans. So well, let's just start on just for interest's sake. They, I would take it a lot of people here have read Atonement, and a lot of people here have uh, uh, seen the movie as well. So those and only those who have both read the book and seen the movie, uh, those who thought uh, Atonement the movie, great movie, undoubtedly was, did the book justice, hands up. And those who don't think it did, or didn't think it did the book, so it's kind of, more, more thought it didn't do the, and yet people who hadn't read the book but saw the movie, you know, the movie got rave uh, reviews for a huge success. So it could have been even better. Do you think the eyes have it? I, I thought the I thought the nose had it there. Yeah, yeah, just <laughs> in okay. the Scottish Parliament we do it by buttons. Oh, I know. Everybody pushed. Did you not get your buttons to push? <laughs> I 
Oh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Ian McCune. Now, we're on a, a, a very uh, harsh timetable by the festival director, but I think we've got a chance for, uh, uh, for one or two questions. Now, uh, unfortunately, I didn't bring my specs with me, which is total vanity, so you'll, you'll have to bear with me if I, if I sort of transpose your sex or gender or something like that. So, ladies and gentlemen, hands up. Who'd like to ask uh, Ian uh, a question about the book or his book? This gentleman here, hand up there. The microphones will be coming to you. Wait for them so everybody can hear what you've got to say. Is it, it's working? Good. <clears throat> I'm looking forward to reading your book, um, Ian McEwen. <clears throat> and I just wonder if you have produced yet another piece of evidence showing how effective the female is working in a clandestine profession, considering two others just come out, the girl who fell from the sky and the spy who loved. Uh, maybe I'm wide of the mark in terms of what you have written, but do you have any feelings towards the female rather than the incompetent male agent? Well, they, I'll repeat the question back. So, um, so could, right, maybe our sound guys, just that the questions, or can't you hear this? Right, in that case, can the sound guys up this uh, volume a bit? What does that sign mean? <laughs> uh, does that mean no? No, I can't do it anymore. Right, oh, okay. Ian, Ian and I will, will try to, to, uh, uh, to bomb it out, ladies and gentlemen. Now, this gentleman here was asking about uh, whether this latest book was uh, another example of the uh, highly competent uh, female uh, being surrounded by totally incompetent males in the spying game, and whether this was a uh, uh, a feature of the uh, of the new book, Ian. Uh, I'm neutral on this. I don't think women are better spies than men. Uh, just down to personal cunning and um, you know, competence. And uh, my view is that incompetence is spread exactly equally among the sexes. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sorry if that seems too dark of you. But it, but the narrator what, of the book's a woman. The the book is narrated by through She somebody. is. Um, can we trust her? That's the question. Um, but that's not all women. Uh, no. But I should just add supplementary answer. Am I speaking loud enough? Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, that MI5 was very, very slow to allow women to run agents uh, or even to rise through the ordinary civil service ranks. It, it was probably the last civil service department uh, that... Um, kept a twin-track uh, career structure. So my heroine does discover that actually if she can work for MI5, she works as what was called a clerical officer, which was the lowest of the low. Uh, she knows she could earn twice as much as a waitress in 1972. Uh, the general view was that women couldn't keep secrets. And... <laughs> It was also well known that Burgess, McLean, Philby, Ken Cross, and Blunt were not women. And uh, these views were somehow held, uh, as we often hold contradictory views in different compartments of our minds, so MI5 managed this. And actually, Stella Remington was, was the first, or one of the first, to break through. 
this uh, process. Although there were some formidable women, um, I don't know, those who've read uh, Tinker Taylor of John le Carre remember the character of Connie. She's based on a, a real person whose name is almost coming to me, uh, Bagnall, Bag Bagot, something like that. Um, rather extraordinary lady who could, who could remember just about every Soviet agent and everyone would have to go to her uh, because her memory banks were superior to anything in the registry, in the, in the library files of MI5. But, but in the book, you have a sort of uh, nodding reference uh, from the, your character that of, of these uh, women who have to become, in the future, the Stella Remingtons, you know, who are working their way up uh, despite all the prejudice uh, uh, around them. Well, in the... In the official history of MI5, there's a reference to, um, in November 1972, there was what's known as the Women's Revolt. That's capitalized. Uh, graduate women in MI5 had had enough, and they decided to band together and become a sort of mini trades union. Oh, great. What's interesting is the official history said that their meetings were bugged. Uh, <laughs> uh, <coughs> somewhere in the files, there exists... Um, these di dissenting voices. Well, I, I, I think you've got, you've got you've got the answer in a, a couple of ways there, but certainly it's uh, it's it's one of the one of the themes in the, the new book. Who's next up? This gentleman here. Another microphone will come. Complete change of tack. I discovered today that uh, Mr. McEwen has written a book for ten-year-olds, and I wondered uh, what kind of things. Uh, both Mr. McEwen and Mr. Salmon read and enjoyed when they were 10. <laughs> you first. <laughs> um, both my parents uh, grew up without benefit of books as children, so they had no concept of children's classics. And therefore, in our household, there were there was a great respect for reading and for books, but no one had any idea what I should be reading. So my strongest memories of being taken by my parents. Every Tuesday we went to the library. This is in Tripoli, Libya, uh, to um, an army library, and I just was let loose in the children's section. And so I just chomped my way through everything I could find. Uh, what made huge impression on me? Uh, Biggles. Um, <laughs> And his lesser known, but I think far superior type, the, the thinking man's Biggles, was called Gimlet. Uh, and I was a great fan of him. And then I read stories of survival. And then I was a, had a period in hospital, and a nurse gave me a book called The Gauntlet. Uh, it's by someone called Richard Knox. Uh, it's about a boy in Wales um, on holiday with a crusty old aunt. It's a useful device in children's stories to get parents absent. Uh, finds a rusty gauntlet, puts it on, finds himself in the late Middle Ages, and he happens to be a prince, uh, and the English are coming. Uh, I read that book uh, with total attention. I got to the end, felt very sorry, and I just started again, all over again. I've now got that book, and it's an incredible disappointment. Um, <laughs> um, it's, he doesn't put the gauntlet on until about page 120. Um, so uh, it was haphazard, very 
I read my children's classics in my mid-teens when I heard about them for other means. I had the, uh, it's, it's quite interesting. The, uh, I read Biggles books as well. Uh, and now I'm about to uh, demonstrate a totally unsuspected knowledge of Captain W. E. Johns. E. Johns. Mm. Uh, because he didn't actually start out as a children's writer. His first books were short stories uh, about the First World War, uh, in which he'd served, uh, about pioneer air fighting. And they're great books. There are even love affairs in the short stories, as in Affair de Cour, one of the short stories, which is a kind of giveaway, but it's uh, about him having a, an affair with a, a German agent. Uh, uh, so you'd, you could have written this stuff, actually. Uh, and th these books, of which there are about four short stories, uh, collections of short stories, were first published in magazine form. Uh, and they were great. I mean, they are fantastic reads. I've still got them. They are great short stories, and they are absolutely authentic because, you know, he'd actually done it. Uh, and, he, you know, he knew the, not just the frightening statistics about your life expectancy as a subaltern in 1918, you know, flying airplanes, but uh, all sorts of technical stuff about, the, you know, sop with camels and all this sort of stuff. And absolutely fantastic, riveting books. Now, so I read all these books voraciously. Uh, and then I thought, right, okay, there's a whole series of Biggles books. And, of course, the Biggles books... A rubbish, you know. <laughs> well, not not rubbish, but you know, the, I mean, I couldn't understand what was happened. You know, they, uh, we'd gone from, you know, the Western Front in 1917 and real gritty stuff to you know, Biggles flies undone or something. You know, I mean, total nonsense with Biggles and algae and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and I couldn't work out. And and it wasn't until much later that I actually read and found out that it started out as writing pretty tough, gritty stuff, which was really great. And, of course, didn't have that much either popular appeal, because I suspect people maybe didn't want to remember the, the First World War. I think in the 1920s, perhaps, there wasn't a great market for, uh, for it. And then he had achieved this incredible success as a, as a children's author, you know, by toning down no love affairs, and, uh, unless it was Biggles and Algae, I suppose, but certainly no love affairs. Uh, and... and uh, and, uh, and took out all the sex and the grit and the death, uh, except for the villains, uh, and produced something which obviously of its type was great, but uh, of nothing like. So that, as 10 years old, I was reading the Biggles Pioneer Air Fighter. Uh, I was also off, uh, uh, off school a lot because I was an asthmatic. So I tended to read a lot. Uh, but I, my dad... Uh, who's still going strong. My big sister, incidentally, is, uh, is sitting in the audience here in the, in the front row. Margaret, do you want to stand up? This is my big sister, ladies and gentlemen. Stand up. This is Margaret. So she can verify that everything I say is true. But my, my dad, in uh, about 1960 or so, bought, uh, took pity on one of the guys coming around uh, selling encyclopedias. Uh, and he, he bought this lot of encyclopedias. And I was off school so much, I used to read these encyclopedias from start to finish and back again. And they were absolutely fantastic, all, you know, classical stories, all that sort of stuff. Incredibly annoying for my teachers, incidentally, <laughs> when, I, when I was at school. But that, that's the sort of stuff uh, I read, and I had a lot of time to, to read. Maybe not the, the children's classics, but, uh, but uh, interesting stuff uh, nonetheless. And one other thing, your, uh, your heroine in the book, Speed Reads, I did that. I did, just something you do, you know, quickly. No, I'm a very slow reader. 
I envy fast readers on a 20 page an hour kind of I'm desperately trying to get to the denouement, the finish, you know, I try to find out what happens next, then try to peek beyond the next chapter. But so I do that sort of thing. But I was interested that she does yeah. that, yeah. Now, who next question, folks? Gentleman there. Two in, about ten rows back. Remember to bomb it out. Thank you. Uh, I just wondered if the notion of British cultural identity meant anything to either of the presenters. Ian, do you want well, to kick off? I, I suppose that we were surprised somewhat by the Olympics. Uh, and I think it was about the first time in my lifetime that I was aware of people celebrating Britishness as opposed to something more local. Um, so, no, I, I mean, it, when we talk of culture, and this is to come back to what I was saying earlier, I, I think we, we do divide. And the, the act of union uh, has not been a, an act of union of, of, of literary cultures. Uh, and I think, for the reasons I mentioned, there are very strong reasons for that. The imagination uh, has a, a kind of specific quality um, tied to landscape, to locale, to community, to neighborhoods. Even the rise of the modernist novel uh, with its certain kind of internationalist flavor. Uh, well, look at, look at Ulysses. I mean, what could be more local and provincial, as it were, and specific to a place and time than that? And that is you know, the modernist Bible, its, its, its central uh, text. So no, I, apart from that strange and rather heady moment of, of, of the Olympics, which I have to say I was completely obsessed by, I have not confronted Britishness in, at any point in the culture. Now, I, I might surprise you here, but because I, I think there are perfectly valid British aspects to Scottish identity, uh, as indeed there are Irish aspects to Scottish identity or subcontinent aspects. And I, and I think the greatest thing about Scottish identity, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not a was like as person at all, incidentally, but uh, one of the greatest aspects of Scottish identity is a non-exclusive identity. And at its best, always has been. Uh, you, know, you go back uh, 20 years or so, remember Norm, Norman Tebbit's cricket test? You know, he, as he said to the West Indian population of, of England, you can be English or British as long as you support the English cricket team. Uh, you know, as if you had to choose, you know, as if you couldn't be British or English and, and support the West Indian cricket team. And I think at our best, we've always or try to articulate a sense of identity which has multi-layers. Uh, take the opening ceremony of the Olympics, it was brilliant. Absolutely, Danny Boyle, was, I, mean, I was there and it was absolutely fantastic. Why was it fantastic? Because unlike most opening ceremonies of major games, it actually tried to tell a story. You know, it wasn't just folk dancing around, uh, you know, celebrating pop music. There was a story there. Uh, and the story was, you know, idyllic medieval culture, becomes an industrial society and then forms the National Health Service. Missed out a few things, you know, sort of empire, First World War, you know, that sort of stuff. <laughs> so, but, but nonetheless, was absolutely brilliant and, and set a tone eh, which was really, really interesting and, and set, incidentally, an incredible standard for, for our opening ceremony in the, in the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. <laughs> we can have to be up to the mark. Uh, but uh, when it comes to the expression of, uh, you know, the 
the, 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 the dark well, the, the source inspiration for an artist. And I, I think what Ian told me in that brief conversation we had in London is absolutely right. I, I, I think uh, with a few exceptions, perhaps, you wouldn't... Regardless, and this is not about politics, incidentally, but Walter Scott, although I know somebody who disagree with me, he's a biographer, he was an ardent unionist, but unmistakably, not just the inventor of the novel, but the, you know, a Scottish novelist. Uh, so it's not just about politics, it's about identity, and I think the, the spring source, as Ian describes, is absolutely right, you know, and, and it's very... It'd be very difficult, I think, to mistake a, a Scottish novelist uh, from uh, an English novelist or earlier, you know, an American novelist, people writing in the same language but from a, a different accent. And that is a wonderful thing because it would be <laughs> life, the universe, the planet would be incredibly boring if it were not so. It's strange how this is all squashed into, squashed into such a tiny space and this almost uh, makes me think that perhaps landscape... Uh, has something to do with this. If you travel across the States, for example, you can drive for hours and hours across one kind of landscape. Yeah. Here, 25 miles will take you from green sand to clay to hard limestone. I mean, and the surrounding agriculture, the construction of villages uh, and cities is different. We, we, we're kind of so intensely enfolded so that to an American, I mean, the difference between Scotland and Wales is almost academic. I mean, the, you know, it's a 40-minute flight. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder, especially with poetry, whether it's the peculiar nature of our intensified landscape, the way that, um, you know, you can move from the Jurassic Dorset coast to uh, the um, central plains around Oxford, you know, which you see from the Chilterns, and they're such entirely different things. It's only 40 miles, 50 miles, um, that gives us this cultural density, mm. which is so odd. That's a, a real interesting thought, ladies and gentlemen. Now, this gentleman here, they're just uh, with the glasses, about four in, six rows back. Remember it, bomb it out. Thanks very much. Danny Boyle rewrote the book Salmon Fishing in the Yemen as a film script mm -hmm. and as a result of that our grandson who was six who'd auditioned for it in London got the part. He was only in the book because Danny Boyle found the press officer male too dull and turned the male into a female Kristen Scott Thomas along with, the, uh, with, along with Ewan McGregor. In the Scottish Parliament on Saturday, the machines didn't work, and the vote was on the most important people representing the future of Scotland on the famous tapestry, like, tap, like Preston Pans and Bayer, which is really an embroidery. There was one lady, Elsie Ingalls, uh -huh. and I think you'll be very surprised who was knocked out. I've seen no publicity about this at all, and I wondered who's going to follow this through. Uh, I'll look into it. Uh, you know, as, as, as First Minister, uh, although I, I, I have to, uh, it's great actually, uh, you know, because it's one of the, what actually happens with the parliamentary voting machines is one of the things I say, it's no me, it's the presiding officer, you know, it's, it's, it's great that way. But explain to me, just, just to follow this through a bit, the, the, this was the, uh, the, the meeting in the Parliament of uh, people around the, uh, the, the festivals. Just, just tell people what the meeting was about. 
My wife is an embroiderer and has been involved for years in England, abroad, and in sure. Scotland. And there was a McCall Smith um, lecture during which he was introduced as having been brought up in the colonies along with the gentleman beside him. Yeah. And he spoke about the tapestry and there would be this meeting. And I was surprised that he'd grown up in Stockbridge yeah. uh, and got onto the question of tapestries. And we were invited to go on the Saturday, a panel of four trying to decide with Andrew Crummy who would actually do these uh, tapestries to represent Scotland in the way that the Preston Pans tapestry uh, had been recently in St. Mary's uh, in, in Palmerston Place. But sadly, the technical things didn't work, and they had to resort to taking a hand count, and people didn't understand very well, and they were told not to double vote by the presiding officer and finally, McCall Smith said, two votes per list. It was very, very confusing. But as I say, the result was that the only one who survived was Elsie Ingalls. All right. Off well, the women. I'll definitely look into it. <laughs> but uh, but you know, I'll tell you, it, it shows the incredible range of things uh, that happen uh, in Edinburgh uh, uh, during the festival period, where that dangerous space where politics and... Uh, and art uh, intertwined. Now, ladies and gentlemen, do we have another... Oh, we've got a whole forest up the back. Can, can we... We've got about five minutes. Can, maybe take all three, and then we'll... we'll or just one. Right. Oh, you're waving in support. Great. <laughs> Hi, <Emma>. Ian. <laughs> Sorry. Mine's is quite a simple question. It was just to say, are you worried about how the Kindle is taking over books? Um, I've always been quite a, been brought up with books and love books, but as far as the Kindle goes, it's just no right. I don't like the Kindle. But what do you, what's your feelings on the Kindle? Well, what do you think about that, Ian? Um, well, it's what we're all wondering at the moment. So it's 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 on every mind, I think. Um, I've just moved house and I've been unpacking books and putting them on the shelves. And it's a curious process because a whole reading life is there. Uh, you know, you, you're dealing with the books you bought as a sixth former, uh, which sometimes you, you don't touch except to move house. And, uh, and yet somehow you could never throw them out. They're part of the story. You could not be doing this with a Kindle. Um, I mean, one Kindle on the shelf would probably... Yeah, may, maybe three. But you'll need less you know, houses. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I... You know, I'm just shaped by my times. I've lived with this perfect winged object that doesn't require a battery. Um, but on the other hand, I'm very quickly coming around to the convenience of uh, reading on a tiny screen, especially when traveling. Uh, and like many people, I end up buying both. Uh, buy the hardback, buy um, the e-version of it. Um, ultimately, I don't think it's going to matter. I mean, we who live by the, with the book for all these years will moan and groan. And anyway, we'll still have our old books. And I think publishing will still go on. Uh, but the main business will be what people do with sentences and what they do with their poetry or their fiction that 
the invention must still go on. And I think the delivery, though it's important, is secondary. It's interesting how, how thorough we are, because I, I, in my pad, I've got this uh, 3D book uh, shelf uh, program. And the point about it is you can turn the page on the iPad, and it makes a very satisfactory turning the page sound. So this, this, despite the fact there's no rational or logical reason why I should do this, I prefer mm. the one where I can pretend <laughs> I'm, mm. uh, I'm, turning a, I'm turning a page. But, I uh, think that's transitional. Transitional? Yeah. Yeah, Grad. Is it something deep? No, it's just a phase you go through. Yeah. Uh, it, you want to see the page wrap round, and it, the iPad does it nicely, and you can even make it make a swishing sound. In politics, but, we have many childhoods, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> now, do we have one last climatic uh, uh, question? One last question for, for Ian. Uh, gentleman there. Thank you. Uh, Ian, would you have felt as comfortable if you were offered the opportunity to sit with the British Prime Minister in a situation like this? I think the invitation is improbable. <laughs> uh, and I probably wouldn't feel so much at ease, no. You told me, you told me a story about Tony Blair in, in, in the... Uh, in the uh, well, uh, actually, I was going to tell a more painful, sorrowful story about sitting on stage with a politician in Rome. Walter Veltroni was Deputy Prime Minister um, with uh, Signor Prodi, and he very kindly agreed to um, monitor a session, chair a session, just this way. And it was all going very well, and suddenly one of his aides signaled to him, and he leant forward and, and left. Uh, <laughs> was it something you said? Well, this being Italy, his government fell that night. Uh, <laughs> and so watch out. You're the <laughs> These, these are the things that you, you learn after the event, you know. <laughs> the, the, but before, you see, the, when the minority government, you see, the, the, I, I couldn't kind of leave uh, Edinburgh on a, a Wednesday or Thursday because <laughs> uh, we were in a position where that exactly could have happened. It's, uh, so one of the great virtues of having a, a majority is, uh, is I can do things like this without fear of the government falling immediately. <laughs> and that tapestry might undo you. <laughs> Well, if, if the machines didn't work. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Ian McEwan. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming to this event sponsored by Scott Moncrief. Thank you to the First Minister for chairing it. And join uh, Ian McEwan round in the bookshop to sign a copy of his book. Thank you. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.